Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, you can find that on page 450 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 67, I'm going to read together the entire psalm. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word as we prepare uh, to consider this word that we have read. Let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make your word a swift word, passing quickly from our ears to our hearts, that as the rain does not return empty from watering the earth, so may your word not return unto you empty, but may it accomplish the plans and the purposes for which you have sent it forth that we might see the glory of Jesus and the mission to which he has called his people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Christian life, we are often confronted with this question. Why do we do what we do? Whether our children asking us or new inquirers who have been visiting a church, That question provides opportunity to reflect upon Scripture's principles and seek to apply them to our own lives. Now that question, why do we do what we do, takes on an even greater urgency when a mission work, a church plant, is begun. My wife already had one interaction with someone in town, I think it was her physical therapist, who when she heard why Cheyenne and I had moved to Klamath Falls said, another church? Why why do we need another church? Why do we do what we do? Why is this church plant here? Well, before answering the specifics of those questions, let's broaden our perspective for a moment. We're a mission work under the banner of the home missions of the OPC. Why does the OPC have home missions? As we broaden that out even further, why does the OPC have foreign missions? Why are missionaries an important part of our history? And why is our presbytery seeking a renewed emphasis upon home missions through church planting and uh, hopefully sometime soon through having a, a regional home missionary who will assist those church plants and church planters? What does it look like for us, both as individuals and together as a mission work, to pursue missions? Well, Psalm 67 gives us a snapshot of the heartbeat of the mission work of the church. Principles that govern the foreign mission field, the home mission field, or long-established churches. All God's people are called to this mission work. For the truth that Psalm 67 sets before us is this. Because the grace of God has powerfully saved us from sin, Jesus calls us to pursue salvation's harvest across all the earth, as God sovereignly gathers his people to himself. 
Because the grace of God has powerfully saved us from sin, Jesus calls us to pursue salvation's harvest across all the earth as God sovereignly gathers his people to himself. And we're going to see three ways in which Psalm 67 unpacks this truth. First, we'll look at the purpose in missions. The purpose in missions. Second, we'll focus upon the sovereignty over missions. The sovereignty over missions. And third, we'll notice the harvest from missions. The harvest from missions. So first, consider with me this morning the purpose in missions. Look again at verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We begin with the why of missions. This why has propelled the church forward ever since Jesus returned to heaven and commissioned his church to go into all the world, beginning at Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. But that commission in Acts 1 was not the first time that scripture had propelled the people of God out their doors to carry the good news of the gospel to the nations of the world. This has always been God's purpose. You go back to Genesis 1 and you look at the creation mandate and understand how the going forth and populating of the earth is connected with the going forth and populating of the earth in that mandate given by Jesus to his church. God's purpose has always been that the earth would be populated with those who seek God's face to worship God. And Psalm 67 unpacks that by beginning with the blessing of God upon his people, as recorded in number 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord himself describes that blessing one verse later in Numbers 6, 27, as placing his name upon his people. That blessing is placing his name upon his people. So in some ways, the commission of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is an outflow of this blessing promised back in number 6 that forms the meditation of Psalm 67. The name of God is being placed upon people as they are gathered to God. So how does Psalm 67 unfold this purpose that's recorded throughout Scripture, whether beginning in Genesis 1, continuing in number 6, continuing in Jesus' commission to his church, and culminating, as we'll see a little bit later, in Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, Psalm 67 begins with the connection between the purpose of missions and the gracious power of God in salvation. A salvation which brings the knowledge of God to a people who previously had been <laughs> ignorant of God, who had been cut off from fellowship with God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now to have God's face shine upon you was to know the divine favor of God. It's the opposite of experiencing God's wrath. When God's wrath falls upon you, scripture uses the terminology of God's face turning away from you. Uh, consider what we see in the gospel accounts in the crucifixion of Jesus as he's upon the tree. And he issues that 
cry of, of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He no longer had the experience of God's face shining upon him in that moment. One of the hymn writers uses the language of God turning his face away as Jesus hung on the cross. He was not experiencing the feeling of that gracious presence of divine divine favor upon him as he took the wrath of our sins, the wrath of God upon him. That's the opposite of what the psalmist is describing here. God turned his face away from Jesus as he was upon the cross so that we might know the blessing of God's face turning to us, shining upon us. Jesus took the wrath of God so that we might receive the blessing of God. And so in that manner, our experience of God's face shining upon us is gracious. It's undeserved. We didn't do anything to earn this favor of God's pleasure. It's bestowed by God freely upon those who have been united to Jesus as he died and rose again. The smile of God's face that we experience is the smile that Jesus earned. It's the smile of grace. Missions begins with the experience of God's grace. You can't have missions. You can't have a church going forth and proclaiming the good news of Jesus, apart from understanding, receiving, and delighting in the grace of God that has shone into your life. But why is it that God's grace shines in favor? Well, the psalmist answers that in verse 2. So that, here's the purpose statement, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, God's way in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms, is the outworking of who God is. One man puts it this way. His ways means his character expressed in actions. What he does because of who he is. Now, Psalm 67 explicitly connects this outworking of who God is with salvation. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power... Among all nations, your way and your saving power are parallel in thought to each other. They're speaking of the same thing. So the desire, the stated purpose in God being gracious to us and making his face to shine upon us and blessing us is so that the saving power of God would spread the knowledge of God over the entire earth. Now, this was the great vision of the Old Testament people of God, whether or not they always kept it in front of them. You want a classic example of not keeping it in front of them? Just remember Jonah as he's running away from going to witness to the Assyrians. But listen to these three passages of Scripture that unpack this great vision of the Old Testament people of God. Numbers 14, verse 21. God says, Truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 11, verse 9. God says again, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then Habakkuk 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is gracious and blesses us and makes his face to shine upon us so that the end result would be his saving knowledge going all across the earth and all the people's. Praising God, as verse 3 states it. 
the end result of the spreading knowledge of God through the saving power of God's grace is that all tribes and tongues and kindreds and nations would join together in the worship of God. Now, I've already alluded to the great commission that Jesus gave to his church, but before Jesus gave that commission in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, he spoke of his own mission. The mission on which the Father had sent him. And he uses the language of Psalm 67. In John 4, Jesus puts it this way, Salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus connects salvation and worship. The saving power of God among all the nations, making known the ways of God upon the earth, leads to the worship of God. This was the mission given to Jesus by the Father. The Father is seeking these types of worshipers, and he sent his Son. And in turn, Jesus gives that same mission to his church. Now to tie it all together, the New Testament later connects the saving power of God being known among the earth with the person of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 declares for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of the glory of God that would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea is the knowledge of the glory of God that's revealed in the face of Jesus. For in the face of Jesus, God has been gracious to us and blessed us and made his face to shine upon us. So what Psalm 67 is exhorting us toward is the spreading abroad of Jesus' name. So that people might come to a saving knowledge of God through Jesus, so that all over the world, people might unite in the worship of God. As they worship the one true and living God under the leadership of Jesus. That, brothers and sisters, is the great why. That's the great purpose of missions. God's grace and saving power, as seen in Jesus, going out all, all over the world to bring men and women to the worship of the triune God. That's the purpose of planting another mission work in Klamath Falls. It's the purpose of sending missionaries out to Asia, Africa, South America, Europe. This is God's call to his people. But as we consider this purpose, it's a bit overwhelming. It seems like a lot is riding upon our shoulders. How are we supposed to carry out this mission? What guarantees the success of this mission? If God has called his people to this type of labor, who keeps it on the tracks so that the train doesn't hurtle off course? Well, Psalm 67 gives us the answer to these questions as well, which leads us to our second consideration. We've seen the purpose in missions. Second, notice with me the sovereignty over missions. The sovereignty over missions. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. While God places a noble purpose before his church, he recognizes that the people in churches are frail and weak. He recognizes that we don't possess the requisite power and knowledge and wisdom to carry out this mission and to ensure its success in going out to the nations that the name of Jesus might be known. 
We can't see all the pieces of the puzzle at once. We, we can't see the whole picture. We don't understand everything that is taking place. We, we can't see the whole picture. We don't, we don't know everything that God is doing. We don't know his timing. We don't know his plans. We don't know all of the outcomes. But God reassures us that the success of the mission doesn't lie with us. And he does that in Psalm 67 by pointing us to the king over God's people. The language of verse 4 takes us to notable passages in the Old Testament. I hope you're getting the picture that Psalm 67 is, is very well connected to Old Testament passages. The language of verse 4 uh, uses the word of, of guiding. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. That word for guide is a very familiar word. Psalm 23. That psalm that unfolds the shepherd king who is the Lord. Who cares for his people. He leads his people beside still waters. And he leads them in paths of righteousness. It's the same word as guide in Psalm 67.4. The phrase judge the peoples with equity. That, that brings delight to the nations shows up in several key passages as well. Psalm 45, verse 6, says that the king, is, the king who is God has a scepter of uprightness. That's related to that word equity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. Isaiah 11, verse 4, declares that the king who is the Messiah, the root of Jesse, uh, who's filled with the Spirit, he decides with equity for the meek of the earth. And Micah 4 uses that same phrase in a passage that connects with much of what we've already seen in Psalm 67. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Same picture as here in Psalm 67. God's Messiah, who's God's anointed king over God's kingdom, shepherding his people from all of the nations, gathering them together to worship him and dispensing a righteous justice that people might worship God under his leadership. Now, as we come to the book of Hebrew, uh, to, to the New Testament, several passages tie these Old Testament pictures together. The book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, ensuring that we know that the king who sits on God's throne, whose throne is forever and ever, that king from Psalm 45 is none other than Jesus. Jesus himself claims to be that spirit-filled Messiah from Isaiah 11 in passages like Luke 4. So the mission to gather worshipers from all nations through the saving power of God going forth through Jesus is sovereignly overseen by that same Jesus. That's why the nations are glad and singing for joy. Because Jesus is on his throne judging the peoples with equities and guiding the nations upon earth. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the head of his church. And that he rules and reigns over, over 
all the affairs of this world for the good of His church, for the good of His people. He's the King at God's right hand who has sat down having accomplished His saving work as Hebrews 10 reminds us. And it is under the headship of King Jesus that the nations gather together to praise God. Hebrews 12 gives a beautiful picture We've not gathered at Mount Sinai. We've gathered at Mount Zion, the the heavenly Jerusalem. And we gather with the saints who have already gone into glory. We gather with with the angels and to worship God. And in that worship, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. That picture in Hebrews 12 is the same picture that Psalm 67 is painting. The success of the mission doesn't depend upon us. Jesus calls us, Jesus uses us, Jesus commissions us. But it's Jesus who governs the outcome of all that take place in the success and building of his church. It's an important truth for us to remember, brothers and sisters. Pretty sure my wife has had to remind me of that multiple times already. Here's our encouragement to persevere in the days and months ahead. Jesus is sovereign over his church and over his mission. It doesn't depend on us. The success of this work does not depend on us. Jesus is sovereign over Klamath Falls Reformed Fellowship. He knows what will happen in the days ahead. He's sovereign over Klamath Falls and the surrounding areas. He's sovereign over Oregon. He's, He's sovereign over everything. And he is sovereignly dispensing the gracious power of his salvation to his people. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to Jesus. Of course, that doesn't mean we sit back on our heels and do nothing. We've been given a purpose that we've seen. But we labor under the authority of Jesus, knowing that our success is not guaranteed by us or by what we do, but by him. But as we contemplate the success of this mission, it leads us to a final question. What does success look like? How do we know if we have been successful in the mission? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final consideration. Third, consider with me the harvest from missions. Verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 67 paints a picture of success. Of the earth yielding its increase. This is harvest language. This is agricultural language. I I don't know what the farms look like around here because I haven't been here in peak farm season, but this 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 is fall. This is the harvest coming in. And in this harvest picture, we're taught some very important lessons about what success looks like in the church of Jesus. Success doesn't look like a certain amount of finances. Even as we pray for financial stability to be our own established work. Success doesn't look like a certain amount of people who've come to some understanding of Reformed theology and decide to start attending the mission work. Success doesn't even look like particularization. Where we become our own organized congregation with our own elders and our own deacons. That's, that's what we're praying for. That's where we're trying to get to, but that does not define success. There are plenty of churches who are their own congregations who aren't necessarily successful in the work of Jesus Christ. 
Success, according to Psalm 67, looks like two related but distinct things that connect to this picture of the harvest with which Psalm 67 ends. I'll give you the two and then we'll unpack them. Success looks like conversions. And success looks like growth and discipleship as we follow Jesus. Conversions and growth and discipleship. Psalm 67, as I said, ends with this picture of a harvest. Now, that may seem a strange place to end this psalm that's been about going to the nations and worship and praise of God and the saving power of God going out. But as we remember the place of the harvest in Old Testament Israel, the picture makes a bit more sense. Deuteronomy, with all those covenant blessings and covenant curses, made it clear that the harvest was a picture of God's blessing coming upon his people. The blessing which was Psalm 67 opens. The harvest was solely dependent upon the divine favor of God upon his covenant people. When they followed him, the harvest would be gathered in. The rains would come. When they rebelled against God, the harvest would be empty. The rains would be withheld. So this harvest language is a direct outflow of God's blessing. God's gracious blessing produces a yield of harvest. The earth gives its increase. Now, that's Old Testament picture language. As we come to the New Testament, we understand how this is unpacked. Jesus made frequent use of this same harvest language. In that same passage in John 4, where Jesus speaks of the Father seeking worshipers, he also tells his disciples to look at the fields for they were already white unto harvest. That, that statement came upon the heels of the conversion of the woman at the well, and the disciples were all confused because Jesus is like, I have meat of what you don't know about. And like, well, what are you talking about? The harvest isn't here. And no, the harvest is here. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields that are already white for harvest. He's not talking about agricultural fields there. He's talking about the harvest fields of salvation. In the parable of the good sower, Jesus uses harvest language to describe the work of the gospel message going out. The gospel seed is sown and the harvest is gathered in. Some 30-fold, some 40-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So what Psalm 67 is urging us to do in using this harvest language is to look for a harvest of worshipers who have come to a gracious knowledge of God through God's saving power. God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. There's that worship language again. We worship God in reverence and, 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 and awe, for he's a consuming fire. It's to fear the Lord, is to have the beginning of wisdom, it's to know God as he has revealed himself and to respond in awe and reverence as we praise him. So tying back again to that worship language, but it's the worship of those who have been converted. And so what Psalm 67 is encouraging us is towards a desire of harvest of souls being swept into the kingdom. That's what we're to pray for. That's what we're to labor for. That's what defines success. And again, it's one of those things that it's easy to step forward and get nervous about because then we feel like it's up to us to go out and get the conversions. Well, no, it's up to us to faithfully proclaim the word and let the Lord convert his people. But that's, that's the first indicator of success is that people are being saved. But Jesus also uses this harvest language in other parables where he speaks of the wheat sown in the field as maturing over time. In Mark 4, Jesus speaks this parable. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. It's a parable that, again, is reminding us of the sovereignty of God over his work. But it also testifies to the natural process of growth in Christlikeness. That grain maturing from the seed. The New Testament uses similar language if we change the analogy a little bit. Peter calls us in 2 Peter to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in 1 Peter, he uses the imagery of infants growing to maturity as they taste the goodness of Christ. So whether looking at it like the growth of a human or the growth of the grain to the harvest, the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes maturity in Christ. We grow together in Christ. We, we, we grow at different rates. We grow at different speeds. We grow at different seasons of life. But we grow together in Christ until we all reach spiritual maturity, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. So conversions and maturing in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, that's what success looks like. Brothers and sisters, everything else is periphery. Everything else is of secondary importance. Klamath Falls Reformed Fellowship exists by the Lord's will to see conversions and growth in Christ-likeness. That's what a successful church plant looks like, regardless of what happens in years to come. If we're not seeing those things, then in Scripture's eyes, we're not successful. If we are seeing these things, then in Scripture's eyes, we're enjoying the blessing of God's successful harvest. And notice how the psalm ends. It ends with certainty. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. There's both a past, present, and future look in these verses. There's a certainty because in some ways the harvest is looked at as already have, have, having happened. The earth has yielded its increase. It's come. It's here. In some ways, there's the present components as we're looking for the Lord to bless us and be gracious to us. And yet there's a future idea here too. God, our God, shall bless us. But whatever way you look at it, one thing is the same. Certainty. A guaranteed outcome. God will bless his people as they labor for him. He's going to bless his people now. He's going to bless his people in the new earth and new heaven. He has blessed his people. His church is being built. And the gates of hell are not advancing against it. And they're not withholding its advance. And we see the culmination of, of all that we have looked at this morning as we come to Revelation 7. Which speaks of a great multitude which no man can number. From every nation, from all tribes and tongues and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. The harvest gathered in, worshipping God, having received the gracious outpouring of God's saving power in Jesus. That's the picture to come, but it's the certain picture. Here's our ambition. Here's our prayer.
Here's our labor as we gather together that God's harvest would be gathered in, that God will bless us, for that is his eternal promise in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for these reminders from your word this morning. We are thankful for this mission that you have given to us as our pe- as your people, but we are even more grateful for the king and the head of the church, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that rest secure under his headship, laboring in his service, knowing that his power and his promises guarantee the outcome. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.